Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll speak with E.J. Dion of The Washington Post and Miles Rappaport of Harvard's Kennedy School. They say everybody in America should vote. Voting should be a duty, not just a right, an obligation, something like jury duty. But first, we need to talk about Ukraine. That's coming up in a minute. We need to talk about Russia's war in Ukraine and how it could end. For comment and analysis, we turn to Anatole Levin. He wrote the book, Ukraine and Russia. He's a senior fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His writing has appeared in Jacobin, The Financial Times, The American Prospect, and The Nation. Anatole Levin, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Well, you wrote for The Nation back at the time of the fall of Kabul on November 15th that the threat of war in Ukraine was much more dangerous to the world than anything happening in Afghanistan. That was on November 15th. Wow. The question now is how the war in Ukraine can end. We're speaking on Tuesday, April 5th. It's day 40 of the war in Ukraine. Russia has pulled its forces back from around Kiev. Putin has been talking about victory in defending the Russians and the Donbass from the fascists that were threatening them. That seems to point towards the possibility of some kind of settlement. On the other hand, all the news about Russian troops killing civilians has led Biden to say Putin should be put on trial for war crimes. That seems to make a settlement less likely. You wrote back in November that we already had the outlines of a settlement in Ukraine drawn up by France, Germany, Russia, and Ukraine, endorsed by the United States, the European Union, and the UN. You said it corresponds to democratic practice and international law and to America's own approach to the settlement of ethnic conflicts. Moreover, at the time it was endorsed, it required no concessions, you said, of real substance by either Ukraine or the US. What was that proposal and is any of it still relevant after 40 days of war. Minsk II was an agreement between Ukraine and Russia brokered by France and Germany, uh, whereby the two separatist uh, parts of the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, uh, which had rebelled against Ukraine backed by Russia, would go back into Ukraine, uh, but on the basis of full local autonomy. Now, I mean, there were all sorts of problems about uh, Minsk too, but the, the basic one, it has to be said, is that the, the, the Ukrainians refused either to let the Donbass republics become independent or to pass the laws on autonomy, which were necessary in order to implement the Minsk agreement because they were afraid uh, that an autonomous Donbass within Ukraine would act as a break on Ukraine moving towards the West, which was probably true, but of course it was only on the basis of autonomy that you could solve that, that issue. 
And by the way, the United States and the UN both endorsed the, Min- uh, the Minsk Agreement in 2015, so there was unanimity behind it. Uh, but the West did nothing really to push the Ukrainians into implementing it, uh, or on the other hand, into you know allowing the Donbass to go. And so that, along with you know, the offer of NATO membership that was not really an offer of NATO membership, but coupled with the refusal, you know, to offer a treaty of neutrality. Look, I mean, I must make very clear, nothing can excuse uh, the the Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine. Um, But it must be said, you you know, that uh, we and the Ukrainians also missed numerous diplomatic chances of averting this war. Let's talk about neutrality. for Ukraine, it's usually regarded as something that would be a, a huge and dangerous sacrifice for Ukraine. Is that the way you see it? Well, no. Um, but of course, the, the, the main point is what Z- President Zelensky of Ukraine said. In the run-up to the war, he went to the leaders of NATO and the West and he said, can, can you assure me that within a space of years, five years, I think, that you will you know, offer NATO membership to Ukraine? And they said no. And so after the war began, uh, Zelensky has now offered a treaty of of neutrality. The sad thing is that for Zelensky's political reasons, he couldn't offer that before the war. And the leaders of the West, for their own political reasons, not very creditable ones, I have to say, um, did not offer that either. But you know, it's it's worse even than that, because uh, Zelensky is now offering a treaty of neutrality. Uh, but very understandably, from a Ukrainian point of view, he is asking for security guarantees that the, the West will go to war if, if Ukraine is invaded again. Now, after all this language in which the British, my own country, have been you know, among the leaders of solidarity with Ukraine, the British government came out immediately and said, no, no, we're not going to offer any, any security guarantees to Ukraine. Sorry, no. I mean, in these circumstances where the the West is not prepared to take Ukraine into NATO, is not prepared to offer any security guarantees, neutrality is, you know, the obvious way out. Now, as far as guarantees are concerned, what the Ukrainians can get is a cast iron guarantee uh, that if Russia, you know, breaks the treaty and invades Ukraine again, that the West will reimpose full economic sanctions. But that presupposes that in return for a peace agreement, the West has lifted economic sanctions. Yes, I'd like to ask about that because the United States has imposed sanctions on other countries and left them in place uh, for decades. You know, Iran, what, 40 years? Cuba, 60 years? I mean, a lot of this is for domestic political reasons. Can you imagine an end? Can you imagine a settlement of the war without an end to sanctions? But can you imagine that America would abandon sanctions? Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. But I mean, th- this is, at that point, this ceases to be about looking for peace or helping Ukraine or bringing about a, a Russian withdrawal. It becomes a mixture of, you know, desire to punish Putin and Russia. And of course, uh, American geopolitical agendas of weakening Russia, uh, not really for the sake of Ukraine, but for the, for the sake of isolating China. I really do not see how that can be presented as a moral position. And especially because, as I say, the, the only way to build retaliation into a treaty of neutrality and a peace agreement is to threaten sanctions. But as, as I say, that presupposes that the sanctions have been 
lifted. But also, you know, if we want Russian withdrawal, we, you know, we've got to give Russia incentives to do so. But finally, I mean, the, um, I mean, the point is that the sanctions leave aside, you know, the sanctions that were imposed in 2014 because of the annexation of Crimea and because of the civil war in the Donbass. I mean, that's a, that's a separate issue. The, uh, by the way, the Ukrainian government has said that those issues can be shelved, you know, for, for later negotiation. But the sanction, the latest round of sanctions were, were imposed in response to the Russian invasion. Quite rightly, by the way, I, I support full sanctions, you know, because I, I deeply, deeply oppose this invasion. But logically, therefore, you know, they should be lifted in return for a reasonable and acceptable peace deal, and in order to make that peace deal possible. And what's the alternative to a negotiated ceasefire and, and a settlement? What, what would an open-ended military stalemate look like for Ukraine? Well, I think, I mean, the, the, the Russians having, you know, totally messed up their military plan uh, to, to a quite extraordinary degree, really. I mean, quite apart from the, the criminal aspect of this invasion, you know, it's been handled with, with utter, utter incompetence. But anyway, I mean, you know, having failed to, to capture Kiev and having failed to frighten the Ukrainian government into running away or surrendering, the Russians are now deliberately pulling back from uh, around Kiev in order to concentrate on conquering the whole of the Donbass. Because very important point, you see, is that before the war, the Russians did not hold the whole of the Donbass region, but they recognized these republics in the whole of the Donbass region. So now they're going to try and conquer the whole of that. Mariupol, by the way, you know, which has now been under siege for a month, um, is uh, is also part of the Donbass. And then um, one suggestion that I've heard uh, out of Moscow, I, I mean, you understand this is not from the Russian government because this is at fourth hand because Putin's circle has become so narrow that people who in the past I know who were in a position to know what was going on, they confess themselves that they don't. But anyway, there is talk that because Russia has suffered such heavy casualties um, among its best troops in the war, that if, if it can conquer the whole of the, of the Donbass, then Putin can proclaim victory, you know, that he has liberated the Donbass, that the Russians might then offer a unilateral ceasefire, you know, and say, now these are our these are our negotiating terms now, uh, and basically then stand on the defensive uh, and challenge the Ukrainians to, you know, attack them in the east. Uh, because then, uh, you know, the Ukrainians would start suffering very, very heavy casualties. Um, and if we, of course, escalated with, you know, supplies of tanks and warplanes to allow a full-scale Ukrainian uh, offensive, then, you know, that would escalate the war to another level. Um, so I suspect that what might happen would be a, um, you know, yet another unending conflict, you know, like the Donbass since 2014, but on a larger scale, um, or Kashmir, you know, in which there would be um, maybe not full scale, uh, after a while there would no longer be full scale war, but there would be endless, you know, clashes. Now, that would be very sad because I, I think that actually, in many ways, we have 90% of a, of a peace agreement is already in, in place. A treaty of neutrality with guarantees, but not security guarantees, which they won't get. But, you know, 
look, the Austrians didn't get security guarantees in the Austrian State Treaty of 1955. The Finns didn't. At a certain point, you just have to trust that people will keep an agreement. And and also, I mean, the the, the reason I keep referring to the Finnish example is is that of course the um, the reason or a key reason why Stalin did not try to you know conquer Finland completely and incorporate it in the Soviet Union was that the Finns had fought so hard. I think that's true of the Ukrainians as well. Uh, I, I would very much doubt that if, you know, if Russia can get an agreement that Putin can present uh, as a success, can pretend to be a success, I, I would myself very much doubt that any Russian government would want to repeat this experience again, because you know, I mean, it has been uh, it's been militarily disastrous for Russia as well as economically disastrous, and the Russians, you know, it appears have. Um, dropped their demand for demilitarization. They've dropped their demand for denazification. And the Ukrainian government uh, has uh, very wisely uh, said that the, you know, the territorial issues of, of Crimea and the Donbass, you know, can be compartmentalized and left for future diplomatic negotiation. Now, I'm not saying that that would ever lead to anything, but you, you, then you get to something like, you know, the case of Northern Cyprus, for example, mm -hmm. you know, which has lasted for 45 years now. Um, and there have been endless rounds of negotiation. They've never led to the reunification uh, of Cyprus. But on the other hand, there hasn't been another war. So, uh, but the problem, I mean, the, the key problem is the Donbass, I think. That's the 10% that's the, the or so, uh, which remains, you know, unsolved. And, and how do you think um, years of sanctions will reshape Russia's economy and society? I, I think that Russia will inevitably become more and more and more dependent on China. Um, you know, China will replace the West as or Europe as the market for Russian gas and oil. China will then, by the way, also determine the price of Russian gas and oil. And this will be you know, a, a partnership very much on, on China's terms. Within Russia, I think it's very clear you will have a a much more state-dominated economy, um, you know, much more state capitalism, if you will, and it will be much, much more repressive. You know, it will be Russia, you know, once again looking, I mean, not like the Soviet Union, um, obviously it will still be a, a capitalist system, uh, but, you, you know, with much higher levels of, of repression uh, than we've seen, well, since before Gorbachev, actually. And do you see Europe going without Russian natural gas uh, indefinitely? They they say now they want to reduce imports by two thirds and maybe also coal. Is this is this a temporary wartime situation or is this something more permanent? Well, I think over time the Europeans will definitely move away from Russian energy supplies. But I mean, this this will take this will take time because the alternatives are not there except for coal. I mean, coal is there, but you know, I mean, at that point, you you know, talk of serious action against climate change goes out of the window. And of course, as far as gas is concerned, if if America really you know develops fracking further and tosses any environmental concerns there out of the window, then over time you know, Europe can be uh, supplied. But of course, this will, this has to come in tankers across the Atlantic, which means colossal investment in new infrastructure, whereas, of course, the Russian gas comes by pipeline. 
so A, this can't be done quickly. B, it's very expensive. But C, uh, because, you, you know, another great concern of mine is climate change. I, a book of mine published last year, or was it the year before, but I can't remember anymore, on, on climate change. And of course, once you've built a huge new uh, LNG infrastructure, it's going to be even less likely that Europe will move away from, you know, natural gas. You, we will see, I, I doubt under all the big talk, that Europe would be willing to undergo the kind of sacrifices uh, that um, would be necessary in order to do, do without Russian gas now. Um, and I think, you know, this, this is the thing, I mean, if the Russians are sensible and, you know, do declare a ceasefire and, you know, basically accept all the Ukrainian conditions except the question of the borders of the Donbass, then I think you, you might see a split between some of the Europeans and uh, and, and America uh, over whether to, to, to accept the Russian terms. Anatole Levin is a senior fellow of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a contributor to The Nation. Anatole, thank you for talking with us today. Glad to be here. What if everybody voted? What if voting was a duty, not just a right, an obligation, something like jury duty? E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport say it's time for universal voting. Their new book is 100% Democracy, the case for universal voting. E.J. is a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post, also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a professor at Georgetown University. Last time he was here, we talked about his book, Code Red, how moderates and progressives can unite to save our country. E.J. Dion, welcome back. It is great of you to have us on, John. It's great to be with you. And Miles Rappaport is former Secretary of State of Connecticut. He's now a senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School. He's also former president of Demos and former president of Common Cause. And he's also an old friend from college days in SDS. Hi, Miles. John, hi. Good to be with you, too. While Republicans have been working for many decades to make it harder to vote, you guys want to make voting compulsory. We all know the case for eliminating obstacles to voting, like long lines at polling places in black neighborhoods. We want to protect the right to vote, block voter suppression, and prevent election subversion. Why isn't that enough for you guys? Why should people be required to vote if they don't want to or if they don't care? EJ. It is not enough to have a democracy based on 40 to 50 percent of us at midterm elections. And even in a great turnout election like 2020, two thirds of us in the election that Joe Biden won. I'm glad you connected those two, John, because our core point is that the best way to protect the right to vote is to assert a universal civic duty and obligation to vote. If this system is adopted, then all of the assumptions in the political system and the electoral system turn around to favor broad participation. Our book makes very clear that to adopt this system, you must also adopt what we call gateway reforms, which are all the things you talked about uh, to make it easier 
to vote. This means election officials would have to act in a way that's pro-democracy and that the election laws would have to make it easy for people to vote just as jury service is made as convenient as possible, as onerous as it can be. The, the jury duty metaphor is actually a really good metaphor for what we have in mind. Because when you think back to the civil rights movement, one of its greatest victories was ending discrimination in the selection of juries. What that really meant is that African-Americans, Black Americans, like white Americans, would join the pool of those required to serve uh, on juries. Charles Ogletree, the great civil rights lawyer and professor, talked about how juries give extraordinary power to ordinary citizens. That's exactly what elections do. And we think that by making voting uh, an obligation, uh, we will make our democracy much closer to what we have always hoped it could become, which is, in the title of our book, 100% democracy. Has anybody ever tried to make voting compulsory in a democracy? I know they do this in some totalitarian countries. Saddam Hussein had an election in Iraq in 2002. He reported 100% turnout and he got 100% of the vote. I, I don't think that's what you have in mind, but, but has anybody tried it other than Saddam Hussein? Miles. Well, yes, we uh, looked very carefully using the Freedom House definition of democratic countries and there are 26 countries around the world, 26 democratic countries that utilize universal voting in one form or another. We have kind of selected, uh, in a way, Australia as the best case in point, and EJ is the kind of world's leading expert on Australian <laughs> election. Um, but the reason is that they have had it since 1924. Uh, they have a political culture that is far more kind of celebratory and positive uh, than the one we have here, and people have assumed it as a uh, as a, a part of uh, of being a democratic citizen without trouble. But the truth is, there are also other countries in Latin America, in Europe, in Africa, and around the world where they have done this. And generally speaking, the results have been good, the turnouts have been higher, and the electorate is more representative of than of the population as a whole. I think Australia is really helpful because number one, they have a streamlined, extraordinary registration system uh, that gets virtually everybody on the rolls. One of my research assistants, when she was researching Australia, burst into my office and say, look at all the cool stuff Australia does to make sure that everybody can vote. Uh, and then they turn out, uh, they register roughly 96% of the population and 90% of that 96% turns out. Um, the second piece is Australia election days are like parties. Australia is known for democracy sausages because turnout is so big that every community group, schools and other charitable organizations use election day to raise money and they sell, among other things, uh, sausages that have come to be called democracy sausages. Uh, for you vegans out there, our book explicitly calls for <laughs> vegan alternatives okay. to democracy sausages. But one of the things that's wonderful about Australia is, unlike us, they don't treat elections as uh, fancy dinner parties. There's no A-list of likely voters who get all the attention, and then B and C lists of voters 
uh, who are largely ignored. There is zero incentive for a political party to try to either suppress the other side's vote, because that's essentially illegal, or to use political advertising to discourage the other side's supporters from going to the polls. That changes the quality of the debate in what both Miles and I see um, as a much better, in a much better direction. Would compulsory voting involve penalties on people who don't vote? Would you like fine people who don't vote? And wouldn't that fall unfairly on the poor? The premise of universal voting, as we call it, for both substantive reasons as well as messaging reasons, is that is to create a culture where it is the expectation of every citizen that you will participate and you will vote. Other countries have different mechanisms, but what we recommend is a kind of light touch enforcement where if you don't vote, you would get a letter from the secretary of the state or whomever, explain, you would have to explain your reason, which could be any kinds of uh, legitimate reasons. Uh, and if not, then you would get fined at the level of a traffic ticket. And we have taken great pains in the recommendations that we make in the book that this not become one of those instances where a small fine you know, then becomes uh, interest, it bears interest, it bears penalties, and sooner or later you have a real problem. Our recommendation is that uh, that it not be a fine that can be increased in any way. It can be done by community service, and people can assert, you know, a conscientious objection to voting. So again, our idea is not to penalize people, but it is to have the expectation and the sense of requirement that voting is something that you do in the same way that jury duty is treated now. You know, so, we would put a $20 ceiling on the fine. And if you take, again, the Australian experience, uh, only 13% of uh, non-voters end up paying the fine. They accept legitimate excuses. And a really important thing in our system, both for uh, constitutional reasons, but also for moral reasons, you're not required to vote for anyone. If you don't like any of the candidates, you can cast a blank ballot so there's no compelled speech here. You can scroll anything you want across the ballot, which happens in Australia. Uh, and then just to be very clear on this, we would add a none of the above option to every race. We're not going, we're not about compelled speech. We're about compelled participation. It's quite clear to us that uh, since it is not compelled speech, but compelled conduct like jury duty, uh, it would pass constitutional muster. Yeah, let me ask about the constitutional issue for a minute here. The The original constitution of 1789 had nothing about a right to vote. And indeed, there wasn't universal, nothing like universal voting uh, in, in the 18th and early 19th century. The 15th Amendment does mention a right to vote, but all it says is, is that it won't be abridged because of previous condition of servitude. And of course, that's a long way from a mandate. You're, you're exactly right about the early republic. The idea of 100% democracy is premised on the trajectory that we have been on from the beginning of the republic. That yes, we started out where the, when we started out, it was essentially white male landowners or property holders who could vote and everybody else was excluded. And over time, we've extended the franchise uh, later to all uh, white men and then uh, briefly after uh, after the Civil War during uh, Reconstruction uh, to black men as well. And then that right was rolled back. But then eventually we got the vote to everyone, to uh, to women in the 1920s and then to 
Black Americans and everyone else through the Voting Rights Act. Even though and let's been... mention 18 year olds got the right to vote in what, Correct. 1971. I remember. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I remember. You know, so this is about keeping us on that trajectory of uh, inclusion. If you ask me, I am I'm very sympathetic to those who want to add an affirmative right to vote to the U.S. Constitution. I think that would be a good idea. But we think that adopting this idea, which, by the way, and we'll probably get to this, we understand it's not going to be picked up tomorrow morning by a U.S. Congress where we can't even get through necessary reforms like the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act or the Freedom to Vote Act. We think this can start at the local level uh, and the state level. And there are already two bills uh, to advance this idea that are in legislatures in Connecticut and uh, in Massachusetts. So it's starting to percolate up. And our idea is to get this proposal into the mainstream conversation as a real game changer in our voting rights debate. I'll just add that, uh, you know, it, it's it's also the case that we are very, very strongly supportive of a whole series of reforms that are shorter term and that are the subject of public debate now, whether that's same-day voter registration or early voting or universal mail-in voting or restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions. You know, all these are essential reforms. We call them gateway reforms because we think that they are the necessary kind of precondition for the successful implementation of a universal voting system. But we wanna have the universal voting system, the idea, the fundamental idea that everyone in our society should participate in the, in the process of self-government as a kind of North Star reform to which we will go, you know, and keep in mind, even as we argue over the shorter term things, and even as even the even the small reforms to open up the process are being viciously opposed by many, many people in the society, which is too bad. Different question. What do we know about non-voters? This is something that political scientists and uh, and campaign directors have been studying for, for decades. The, they call these low propensity voters. Uh, many people think of them as unmotivated, ignorant people, people who don't care, maybe people who think all of politics is a ripoff. Why is it good for democracy to require those people to vote? Well, a couple of things. One is um, we really take on the ignorant voters, so-called ignorant voters argument in the book, uh, because our view is if you start making that argument, you're really mistrustful of democracy altogether. Uh, and democracy is based on the idea that people with all kinds of levels of education and income and every race and class and ethnic group have something to contribute to this democracy. And we hold, uh, uh, I, I love the O'Keefe's old book, The Responsible Electorate, which begins uh, with uh, the sentence goes something like the premise of this short but the unlikely premise of this short book is that voters are not fools and we don't think the voters are fools even when we might disagree with how they vote in a given election and we don't think that non-voters are um, people who will uh, somehow add to the ignorance level in fact what we found in our research is a lot of the people who argue against our idea also don't much like the existing electorate uh, and <laughs> condemn them there's a lot of research, as you suggest, on the non-voters, and it, it goes in a lot of different directions. Our sense is that this, uh, a, an, the electorate produced by our proposal would almost certainly be younger 
because uh, there is a higher level of abstention among young people, partly because our laws make it harder for young people who move around a lot to vote. There would also be a larger number of uh, folks with uh, blue collar uh, occupations, less formal education, fewer degrees or uh, less uh, formal education. Uh, while there's been an enormous increase in uh, turnout among Black Americans, it would probably, it would also make the electorate uh, more diverse uh, Black and Latino voters. It, but it would also include more white working class voters. And I think that's an important point to underline. This became law in Australia because each party way back when thought it had some advantage to them in it. And while Miles and I are both progressive in our politics, this is not an agenda to turn the electorate into something that will elect progressives in every election, even if Miles and I would kind of like that. Uh, the purpose of this is to include everyone. Uh, and we, we actually make a case that if you look at the 2020 election in terms of the big, big turnout increases we did have, in many places, this helped Republicans elect members of Congress because there were big turnout increases in certain parts of the country in constituencies that uh, lean toward the Republicans. So um, this is not a partisan effort. This is an effort to have a more inclusive electorate, and we are happy to live with the results. On the other hand, re Republicans have spent decades trying to make it harder to vote, apparently because they think that if more people vote, more Democrats will be elected. And indeed, in 2020, highest turnout in history, Biden got a record number of votes and beat Trump by 7 million. Don't you think more Democrats will win elections if we have universal uh, voting? You know, we really do start from the premise, and it is a fundamental values premise, that we want to have a fully inclusive, fully representative democracy, and that the current electorate is, you know, skewed in a variety of directions towards older, whiter, more educated, and richer voters. And we think that the best decisions would be made, as is the case in jury selection, you know, where you have a fully representative electorate. So that's an article of faith on our part. Yes, it is clear that there has been an effort to make it harder for people to vote. That effort is continuing, you know, in legislatures uh, around the country. I do want to make the point that I think there are a number of Republican election officials and elected officials who do believe in uh, encouraging people to vote. I don't think it's a uniform thing, but I do think that, that there is at least a, a, a faction trying to roll back the clock. So that has to be fought. I think it has to be fought in litigation. It has to be fought in legislation, et cetera. But at the same time, we don't want to stop thinking about tomorrow. So we want to think about what it would be like if we had a fully, fully inclusive electorate. That's our goal. That's our hope. One other thing about the non-voter, the evidence that we have uh, is that non-voters tend to be less ideological. So this would produce very likely a more moderate electorate. I have talked about this idea with the Republicans, and at least some Republicans understand that if this system, uh, and these tend to be anti-Trump Republicans, they understand that if a system like this took hold, uh, a more moderate electorate would create pressure on the Republican Party uh, to move away from the far right. But it would create pressure on everybody, including people with strongly ideological opinions, to appeal to voters uh, who care about the future of the country, but don't necessarily see issues 
in ideological terms. I joke that either Miles and I are really honest or fools because this is the only book anyone will ever read where we did polling that shows that right now a majority of Americans oppose our idea. As of right now, 26% of Americans support this, which actually we thought was pretty good for an idea that has never been advanced systematically. Uh, 48% strongly oppose. But if you look at that 48%, what that means is about half the country is already open to this. This polling was done before Trump really toxified election issues. And what was interesting is Democrats were only marginally more in favor of this than Republicans. Uh, It it was 33% of Democrats were for it, but 29% of Republicans supported it. And on a different question, we asked, is voting a right and a duty, a right but not a duty, or neither a right nor a duty? 61% of Americans share our underlying premise that voting is both a right and a duty. And the number came up exactly the same for Republicans and Democrats, 69% each. So in in at least the uh, before this Trumpification of thinking about voting, there were Republicans who were open to uh, having a conversation at least about this. And we hope that can happen over time. E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport, their new book is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. Guys, you've convinced me. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.